another bank just shut down. Regulators today abruptly closed Signature Bank. Kinds of uncertainty surrounding the banking sector tonight. Markets tumbled in North America and Europe, dragged down by banking stocks and alarm about Credit Suisse. The two biggest geopolitical rivals of the U.S. want to counterbalance the dominance of the dollar worldwide, and Russia is increasingly embracing the yuan. I am an ardent defender and a lifelong defender of civil liberties. And Bitcoin is both an exercise and a guarantee of those freedoms. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin versus the banks. And I'm joined here by Margot Paez. She's the head of sustainability at Blockgreen. She's also a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Milan. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, this is actually the first time. Uh, this will be episode, I don't know, 23, I want to say, by the time it's uh, it's published. And it's the first one we've really, uh, really diving into Bitcoin mining. And um, I mean, as you all know, the sort of typical argument against Bitcoin mining is it's bad for the environment. So really great topic to cover because I know you've done a lot of research in that area. Um, so it should be should be interesting. So, um, you know, for anybody that might not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe even how you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, so I'm Margot Paez. I'm also known as Jen Urso on Twitter, or I guess now it's called X, also Nasta, I'm on there too. And yeah, I got into Bitcoin pretty, uh, well, I mean, I first heard about Bitcoin pretty early. I tried it in the early 2010s, but I didn't have a really good grasp of money and what why we needed a stateless money or a decentralized form of money. So I really didn't touch it again until 2018 when I saw content creators being deplatformed and entire content creator platforms being deplatformed from the pin processing system. So that really pushed me to realize that just on that alone, having a monetary payment system or network that existed outside of this, you know, the credit card uh, networks was really, really important for being able to freely exchange money online. So I integrated BTC Pay Server into a website I was building, and that really uh, propelled me to learn more and to get farther into Bitcoin. And then I started getting concerned about climate change because I decided to reorient my entire life around climate change and to work on solutions. So I started questioning whether it was ethical for me to hold Bitcoin. And that pushed me to learn even more about Bitcoin mining and how the incentives work. And I realized, like a lot of people, that, okay, actually, there's something here. And then I just started, you know, thinking more and more about it and finding more and more valuable connections to the things that I cared about. And uh, that pushed me even more to reach out to other people. And one thing led to another and I ended up becoming a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and speaking at conferences and writing about Bitcoin at a more expertise level and so it's been a real whirlwind of an adventure the last couple of years. I never anticipated that I would go from writing an essay about Bitcoin and climate change to being on all sorts of podcasts and speaking at conferences and you know just having my life completely 
changed. Yeah, you're, I think you're one of great. one of few a few people, anyways, in the space that has had that sort of experience where you you kind of do something, you contribute into the space in some way, uh, and then all of a sudden your next year or two, as you said, just becomes a sort of roller coaster ride. Um, I met Troy Cross at the Canadian Bitcoin conference, and he was he was kind of telling me like a similar story. And um, <clears throat> I mean, I could kind of say the same thing about myself. Like, I'm not a big name in the space or anything, but it's it's amazing how I went from being like literally a nobody to all of a sudden just speaking to so many people that I've kind of admired for the past like you know three years or so. Um, so th yeah, things can happen pretty quickly. And it sounds like your journey into Bitcoin has been um, pretty interesting. And maybe a little bit different from most, you know, most of us come in hoping that we're going to win the lottery, so to speak, you know, we're coming in for the, for the money. And then you end up staying for the, for the movement for you. I think right. you, you've kind of had like the right incentives from day one and they've just maybe shifted or pivoted somewhat along your way, but yeah, you're, you're probably um, more admirable than most of us. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, but yeah, uh, I remember, uh, well, I, re I remember, you know, I knew Troy before Troy became you know, the Troy Cross, right. uh, and we sort of rode the same wave, uh, you know, simultaneously. And I had connected with him on Twitter, you know, months, you know, like six months before. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun to watch Troy's trajectory as well. Um, so you work at Block Green. I actually, I'm not that familiar with them. So like, what's the goal of the company? I'm curious. Yeah, so Black Green is a company that's based in Switzerland. They provide, well, they you know they provide liquidity to Bitcoin miners. Basically, that just means they provide money upfront in exchange for a percentage of their hash rate uh, rewards. So they're promising their rewards at a discount to an investor. And it's over a period of time, like it could be over 30 days. And in exchange, they get money up front, which they can then use to invest and grow their company, whatever it is, for whatever reason, they need that money. And it provides a hedge uh, and, a, and risk reduction for the Bitcoin miners. And also, it, it provides exposure directly to Bitcoin through investing in these mining companies. So really, it's just creating like a futures market around hash rate rewards and uh, giving people who are interested in getting Bitcoin, but maybe they're concerned about some of the environmental stuff. It's giving them that access to Bitcoin that is verified to be sustainable through the block green marketplace. Okay. And why did you choose to work for them specifically? <laughs> well, I, I got introduced to the guys at Block Green actually through my friends, through Troy Cross and my friend Marissa Coyo. And they were looking for somebody to do their sustainability framework. And I was also looking for work because I was in a big middle of a big transition. I had just taken leave from the university and decided I wanted to focus full time on Bitcoin research and so I met with them and I thought that our values were fairly aligned. You know, they really care about expanding uh, renewable energy and holding miners accountable and also rewarding and incentivizing them to, to use sustainable electricity sources in exchange for liquidity, right? So I think 
that's a really good model, very interesting model. It's one that's an incentive to the market. So, you know, it's not it's not a negative and reinforced kind of thing. So it's positive incentive. So I like that. I thought that was really cool. And I also just wanted, I also really wanted the experience working on a sustainability framework and having that opportunity to create something that is all encompassing for the Bitcoin mining industry and providing that framework for Bitcoin miners uh, so that we can streamline the whole process around uh, reporting on their emissions and any other aspects that go into measuring sustainability. Well, I think that kind of leads into my next question. So like being the head of sustainability, that sounds like a pretty big role in the company. So like what kind <laughs> of responsibilities do you have? I think you probably just touched on one of them. Uh, well, my main responsibility is the sustainability framework. I'm really in charge of building it from the ground up and I meet with people in the industry and people who work in sustainability in general and try to learn from them. I do a lot of reading right now on the background for developing these frameworks and for developing sustainability reports. I'm trying to pull from as many resources as possible to do that, to, to create the best framework as that we can get and one that also you know meets existing standards so we're not just you know reinventing the whole concept but trying to be aligned with international standards but also tailoring it to bitcoin so that's my primary role i also you know i'm working with blockchain to hire uh, sustainability analysts and I, I have to manage those people uh, once they're hired so we're really in the beginning stages uh, of this and I think the role will grow over time, but right now this is my primary focus is to get this report done, onboard those and analysts and have them working with me on the project. The mining companies that you guys sort of coordinate with, are you almost like an advisor to them in terms of like giving them ideas on how they can be perhaps more quote unquote green? I don't personally, I don't have direct contact with the miners that are onboarded. So I'm not giving them any advice, but if that's something that comes out of the sustainability reports that are generated from the sustainability uh, framework, then I think that's really valuable and useful for helping them to continue to reduce their emissions and to improve their energy efficiency. Okay, cool. So I, I'm like a big advocate for providing vocabulary to people because without vocabulary, mm -hmm. it's hard to kind of filter yeah. through things. So like, you know, we hear this word sustainability or, or sustainable energy. So how does that differ if, if in any way from renewable? Like, I think I understand mm -hmm. the difference, but there may be a little bit of nuance there. Yeah, that's a really good question because there is a difference actually. And even in the de defining sustainability differs depending on what you're talking about. I mean, when we're talking about a sustainability report, you know, we're looking at really at a company's scope of missions, like scope one, scope two, scope three, which as soon as I say scope one, scope two, scope, scope three, I've lost like 90% of your listeners because what the heck are scopes, right? And really those are just the different kinds of emissions that you would be accountable at within your company. So like scope one would be your direct emissions, which just means that these are greenhouse gas emissions that are produced by things that your company 
has control over or is that or owns right and they're within your company's boundaries so however you determine that you know yeah. like uh, and then scope two are your indirect emissions which are things that you need that you use but you don't have direct ownership over so generally like when we're talking about bitcoin mining that's pretty much electricity use like if i don't own the power generator that's I can't I don't include that in my scope one because it's not a direct emission. I didn't I don't own the natural gas plant or I don't own the nuclear power plant, but I'm still getting power from them and purchasing that power. And that power has emissions related to it. When it was created, that energy was converted to electricity, emissions were produced. So I do have to report that I had these emissions, right? So that's like what goes into us when we talk about sustainability, like sustainability reporting, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. But then when we're talking about sustainable energy versus renewable energy, we we are taking an extra step to say, okay, we're not just talking about renewable energy, we're also talking about nuclear energy. So you might hear uh, reports like the, the Bitcoin Mining Council often reports you know, just quarterly reports, and they will usually discuss the percentages in terms of sustainable energy. And what they're talking about is renewable plus nuclear. So really, that's the difference when you're talking about energies. You're not just including renewable, you're including nuclear as well. So renewable being solar, wind, or hydro uh, could also be, you know, like uh, gases like landfill gas or gas from agricultural sites those would tend to also be considered renewable and i guess so, that would include uh things like geothermal energy and right yeah geothermal energy would also be under renewable okay do we know like what percentage of bitcoin miners are using uh quote-unquote sustainable energy sources so we have estimates right and they they vary if you look at the cambridge Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance's website, their Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, they have added an emissions index as well. And on there, they estimate about 26%. So they have in their numbers, they have a high amount of coal and natural gas. But they're also not looking at off-grid Bitcoin mining, and they're also looking at regional averages for electricity mix. So their uh, uh, their methodology is uh, is very top down, but it's uh, you know they're one of the best method like you know modelers out there that that I've seen so far. Um, that isn't you know directly tied to the Bitcoin industry. Then you have reporting from. Uh, uh, Daniel Batten, he's he's actually gone and surveyed companies and also the Bitcoin Mining Council has their companies, which represents like 45 or so percent of the entire network. And they also survey their, their Bitcoin miners. So between Daniel and the BMC, Daniel, I think, estimated around 53% or close to 54% sustainable. And the BMC is even higher. Their estimate is almost 60%. 
but it you know the, this has this is unverified right so mm. this requires third-party verification and it's on my long list of things to do to go through and verify and and really see for sure if this is accurate um the one of the downfalls of the bitcoin mining council's reporting is that they're they keep their surveys proprietary, you know, private. They don't, they have not really done a good job of sharing what their, their surveys with um, universities or independent other researchers. So it's hard to, you know, you, 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 in Bitcoin, you talk about don't trust verify. It's hard to verify if you can't see data. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know for sure. And it is self-reported. So you're also required to trust that the miners, uh, and not so much that they're li- not lying, but that they themselves know how to correctly report their emissions or their their energy mix, because the Bitcoin miners don't really know a lot about how to correctly report their emissions. So that this is a big learning curve that's going on right now in the industry too. So we don't know how how if they're doing it correctly either so there's errors i'm sure there's i mean there's errors across all three of these approaches and what we need really are error bars to say you know this is plus or minus this range and here's the caveats and here's the limitations of what each of these people these groups are doing and unfortunately we don't really have that yet I find it really interesting because like, uh, I mean, it's kind of a question I've had about even just like my own local electricity, like what percentage of it is from nuclear, what percentage comes from hydro, because that's our two primary sources uh, locally. Um, And based on those numbers you gave me, you said 26% and at the highest was 60%. So that's almost a differential of what would that be? 34%. So it's it's quite a, quite a range there. Uh, So maybe to to be fair we could say maybe 40% which to me that sounds pretty high and i i would imagine like you can uh correct me if i'm wrong here but i would imagine that that number is probably only getting higher as time goes on cuz we're looking for more renewable sources is that correct yeah i think that the number should get higher over time mostly because of the incentive structure of bitcoin mining and uh, it's but you really have to find the lowest cost electricity. That's your biggest expense uh, for a Bitcoin miner. So you have to find the cheapest electricity, which is generally going to be renewable energy. And if you're not going to find that, you have to find secondary ways to generate revenue to bring down that cost. So either you're going to sell your heat, your waste heat, which then can then be used to displace natural gas as an input in other, you know, other systems, or you uh, you might participate in demand response programs, and that will then bring in this additional revenue to drive down your cost. You know, so you have to be creative. But you know, for example, either of those two approaches, you know, selling your heat or participating in demand response, are both good for decarbonizing. So there is some net benefit there. And when you look at the the emission estimates, we're also not including that in our estimates. We're not looking at which of these Bitcoin miners are selling their waste heat. What is happening to that waste heat? Where does it go? You know, which of these miners are 
selling carbon credits or which of these miners are participating in demand response, you know, none of that gets included into the overall estimates. So it's just right, you know, right now it's, it, it's a little bit incomplete. And I think the more Bitcoin miners are willing to be transparent and do these types of sustainability reports that we started talking about at the beginning of this episode, uh, I think it will be a lot easier for researchers to do much more accurate modeling. And so that we don't have this huge range, you know, of t- like 26 to almost 60%. It's a, it's a massive, that is, a, it's a massive range. It just shows that there's a lot of unknowns that are not being addressed. I'm curious, this just kind of came to me. Um, are other industries having the same sort of, uh, struggle, if you will, like, you know, with the ESG movement that's been around for, I don't know how long at this point, but, you know, companies have been sort of under the magnifying glass, uh, people looking at what they're doing, how they're doing it. So, you know, whether it's uh, the aluminum industry or whatever it is, are are companies kind of facing the same sort of scrutiny and trying to figure out like, where is our energy uh, coming from? What kind of emissions are we producing? Or is it just specific to Bitcoin? Oh, other companies are facing the same the same scrutinies. I think Bitcoin, unfortunately, because it attracts a lot of attention and it's great clickbait has come under fire disproportionately compared to other industries. But yeah, other industries have to do this. It's expected for companies to be transparent about their emissions and to do this type of accounting and to let their investors and to let their consumers know what they're doing and what their, you know, quote unquote carbon footprint is. I mean, companies even like, which is kind of ironic to me, you know, even a company like BP or Shell or Exxon does a sustainability report. So everyone should be doing it, you know, and I I think it's important too, because the market, if we're, if, if we believe in the market, it's really important to provide as much information to the consumer so that they can decide based off of the best information available, what product they want to purchase or what they want to get out of the marketplace. And if, if companies are lacking transparency, then there's a piece of information that is missing uh, that, that is being denied to the consumer and it can mislead them. So I think it's really important to see all companies do this and data centers in general, just to be, you know, to more directly answer your question, have been working on sustainability for a very long time. You know, uh, the, you know, companies like Microsoft and Facebook, like Google, they were all under pressure in the early 2000s, like around 2009, from environmentalists to get off of fossil fuels and to to invest in renewable energy and so they're they're quite ahead of us in the bitcoin industry in that regard and they're right now they're they're working on matching hourly to make sure hour by hour they are their electricity use is fully renewable energy so with bitcoin miners we're just like okay (laughs) here's what a wreck is (laughs) you know we're really at the very fundamentals like here's this is a renewable energy certificate this is a market-based approach to to decarbonizing 
because Bitcoin miners did not jump into this with that all that in mind, they were trying to, you know, win a lottery, and that was the priority for them. But the but as their energy use grows, their companies mature, and they have to fit in with the rest of the the broader data center industry, which is really at least a decade ahead of them. So that's you know that's part of the issue. Uh, it's just that Bitcoin miners came on the scene, the data center scene, pretty late. So they're they have a, a higher learning curve. But yeah, everybody has to do it. I want to thank you. Actually, uh, going back a little bit, you you had mentioned what scope one and scope two emissions were. I'm glad because like I've heard that on a couple shows, and I'm like I have no idea what they're talking about. So it's good to get a bit of clarification on that. Yeah. I mean, the first time I heard, it, I was like, "Scope one, scope two. What is this? <laughs> you know, scope three. <laughs> it's it's a lot of jargon. Every well, I, th I think it's like jargon, important yeah. to to clarify what that is, though, um, because I mean, you know, considering companies are under scrutiny, um, I guess you could argue that like scope one or scope scope two, um, maybe one is sort of more important than the other to sort of keep track of. Like I, I don't really have a, a position on that, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna every time I hear scope one and scope two, I'm gonna think a little bit more critically about it now. Um, yeah, and so, then there's scope three, <laughs> which is like downstream effects of what what with your product, how is it being used, and what are the emissions with that, and and each of them, you know. I think each are important because they each tell a different story and I don't think the full you have the full story without them. And for some industries, you know, a scope three might actually be more important than scope two or scope one, like with the banking industry, you know, mm -hmm. the money that they invest that goes into their scope three. And then you find out, oh, you're responsible for this and this and this, because without your investments, you know, these coal plants would never existed. So it's right. just, you know, each one is plays an important role in the broader story. Am I right in saying that scope three uh, would be the hardest to, to properly assess then? Almost like you have to kind uh, of do projections on, it's kind of hard to elaborate on this, but like, Scope one, I feel like it's sort of easier to take like actual measurements, whereas scope three, there's a little bit of like almost like guessing that has to go into it. You know, it depends, depends on how the company is account is accounting for that, how how carefully they're keeping track of what happens down downstream of scope, you know, of their direct and indirect emissions or the, that are things that are the consequence of what the company does. I think it is possible to track that to a certain extent, but you know, even with other scopes, I think it, there can be challenges in getting that information. Like, for example, a company like, uh, you know, let's say you have this a company that sells products in a mall, and they have you know, like a J Crew or a bed or or like like um a company that sells like soaps, you know, and they have they, you know, they have their home corporate site, right? Which could be located, let's say, I don't know, in Illinois. But then they have little stores in malls all across the country or even around the world. So they have to then 
do scope one, scope two for everything that they have control over. Incl that includes all those little stores. So there can be challenges if you're if you have a little store in a mall and you want to know what that store's indirect scope two emissions are, like what's their electricity use, you have to find out can I even disaggregate those electricity the electricity consumption from the mall, like the entire malls. How how does the mall uh, <laughs> Uh, decide how much you owe for electricity, right? And what was, right. do they even tell you what your full, uh, you know, electricity use was? You know, there's lots of little things like that that go into, into play there uh, that I think you don't even think about, but the company itself has to find a way to standardize that, find a way to estimate that if they can't disaggregate that data, you know? So there, I think there's challenges across each of these scopes and it really depends on how the organization is designed and what their products are it's really interesting it's like real detective work that's got to be done um yeah, do you know yeah. in the in the u.s uh like what the overall energy mix looks like for bitcoin mining do we have that sort of breakdown in percentages uh hmm. i don't i don't know what it looks like in the u.s specifically most of the miners i mean a high percentage of miners are in texas mm -hmm. so uh but not all of them are in you know connected directly to the grid there's a there's a lot of them that are co-located with renewable energy sites and to give you a sense of the scale ERCOT, I think, which, okay, so ERCOT is in Texas. That's the basically the company that manages the electrical grid for Texas. And they have about 1.7 gigawatts of Bitcoin miners on their grid consuming power. But then there's a company uh, that works with Bitcoin miners and renewable energy uh, companies called Satoshi Energy, and they are claiming that they have almost two gigawatts of projects under development. So that means that you have almost two gigawatts on the electrical grid that are using the, the Texas electrical mix, power mix, and then you have almost two gigawatts that are being developed and will come online that are strictly wind and solar. So on the one hand, you know, it could be that we have a, a lot of miners that are uh, in split between West Texas, West North Texas, and, you know, Southeast Texas, where there's on the West side, there's a lot more renewable energy. And then on the Southeast side, there's mainly fossil fuels. And then yeah, so then you could say like, well, you know, what percentage is on either end and where are they located next to? Uh, maybe it's half and half, let's say. Okay. But then when all of this other renewable energy comes online, does that then balance, balance out what's on the grid? You know, it's really hard to say. And because <laughs> it's not enough just to look at, let's say, average grid emissions like i can't just say okay i know that this is the energy mix for or for texas's electrical grid and let's say it's let's just say 
I'm just gonna throw some random numbers out there. Let's say it's 20% wind and 80% fossil fuels, okay? I can't even, I can't really say to you very clearly that if 100% of the miners were located in the region that is 20% wind, that 100% of the Texas Bitcoin network is running entirely on, on, on renewable energy because there's a lot of contention around how you even decide whether um, something is you know, 100% carbon free or not, because there's something called RECs, which are these renewable energy certificates. And you're supposed to be buying those to say that I basically have ownership of these electrons that came from this renewable energy plant. Hmm. So that makes it tricky. Yeah, and then sure. you have the ones that are co-located outside. And I think those... I mean, I think that's a lot more straightforward to say like, okay, you have two gigawatts of Bitcoin mining uh, power hooked up to wind and solar. And let's just say they're, they only power on when the wind and, and the sun are on. I think that's a lot easier, but it's just really tricky. And I gave you a really, really long-winded and not straight answer because really the short answer is I don't really know and like I said, with the estimates before, we really don't know exactly because those are also average. A lot of times we're using grid average energy mixes. And there's just a lot of contention over whether that's, uh, whether it is enough to just say my carbon footprint or my emissions are totally a reflection of the grid average and there's papers out there that say really you should be looking at your hourly emissions so yeah. i assumed it was complicated it's even Sorry. more complicated than i, I thought. really <laughs> should have given you a much more straightforward answer but sometimes i i work no, up that's okay and it takes me time to get to the big picture but basically no, I, I, long story I, short yeah i think <laughs> you you point to the fact that it is complicated that like you know these numbers you can't just crunch them easily like there's a lot of legwork that goes into it and and i think that also kind of goes into why there is this discrepancy like you you know you said 26 percent, then we got as high as 60 percent because like all of this stuff is just so complex um so yeah. I, I wonder if we'll ever get like a clear picture i guess unless like you said, places can be, let's say, off-grid, and we know that they're specifically uh, tapping into like a local hydro dam or something like that, then we could say, okay, it's it's totally, um, you know, the water that's powering it. Otherwise, it's, I, I don't even know how they do it. I'm curious. I'm like, well, really curious. I mean, the way that we're going to get a better picture is if Bitcoin miners are transparent um, and they are doing these sustainability reports and they are reporting their emissions and they're reporting their grid mix and they're reporting whether they have racks or whether they're doing hourly matching or what their PPA looks like. You know, you don't have to say too much about it, but, you know, how does how how are your purchases, your power purchases reflecting your your goals for reducing emissions? I think that's when we're going to really be able to say more confidently what is going on with Bitcoin mining emissions. So I think right now it's better to focus, uh, I think, 
you know, on the miners that are willing to do that and see what they're doing and, and just work, let's start working from the bottom up to build that, that story. Okay. Like my understanding is Iris Energy, they, they are a hundred percent renewable. I think, it, I think that's what they claim. So yeah, I don't, I don't know how much, uh, like how valid that is. I assume if they're saying that publicly, it's true. So they must be, like you said, sort of starting from the ground up, taking a different approach as opposed to maybe some of the miners that have been around for longer. What do you think? I don't really know a lot about Iris Energy's energy use, so I can't really comment on them. I don't, I don't know if they have racks or what they're doing. Okay. So yeah. Don't we don't want to know. speculate, so yeah. no worries. Yeah. Um, it, for miners that are like that, we know of that are using a lot of fossil fuels. Is there an incentive? I guess financially, uh, for them to switch over to something like wind and solar, that even makes sense. Well, you know, some of them are looking at that. They they may have, they might be an electrical grid that has a lot of fossil fuels, but they may also have miners set up somewhere in a facility that is primarily powered by renewable energy. So. You know, it really depends. I, I think that a lot of these bigger companies are fairly agnostic about their energy use. So I think they're just going for wherever they find the best deal. And uh, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. And But I do think that over time, they are, they have to, they're going to have to find deals that are fitting into these low low emission scenarios or you know that are much more where you know that are where they're they're setting up facilities that are with renewable or nuclear or thermal or whatever types of uh, electricity just because the I think the uh, the trajectory overall for decarbonizing the electrical grid and electricity prices are are going to continue to go towards the sources. And also, you know, Bitcoin miners don't exist in a vacuum. You know, the governments are also trying to move towards clean energy, and the electrical grid is the number one target right now for decarbonizing. So companies, I mean, so countries all around the world are trying to get to that point. So Bitcoin miners are also going to look for deals in countries that have reasonable policies and reasonable laws that makes it easy for them to set up. And I think that those places are also going to be countries that are mindful of, you know, CO2 emissions. So they're going to find ways to fit in. I think into those uh, into those requirements. So over time, uh, I think we will see more of an incentive to move towards clean energy. But yeah, no doubt that right now there are definitely Bitcoin miners that are not necessarily prioritizing <laughs> uh, being located in an area with a lot of renewable energy, or they're not you know consciously purchasing power purchase agreements with renewable energy. So, yeah. But, you know, there's also, I, I will point out something again about the nuances of these electrical grids. So, you know, renewable energy 
is variable and it's not always on it's not always producing power when because the wind is not always blowing the sun is not always shining and day to day the forecast for how much sun is over ahead for how many hours changes over time or how much wind you know it's not consistent either from day to day so grids have to deal with that variability and right now they're dealing with that with natural gas so on the one hand you know there could be benefits to having a bitcoin miner in a region of an electrical grid that has a lot of natural gas because they might be incentivizing uh, that, the, that those natural gas plants to be online and to be ready for when uh, there's not enough wind or solar on the grid, you know? So there's a lot of nuances. It's not simple. It's not easy. And there's trade-offs and there's risks, mostly because of how our electrical grid was designed to begin with. And the fact that our entire civilization is based on fossil fuels. And right now <laughs> we're trying to say no more fossil fuels, but how do we stop using fossil fuels when our entire civilization is completely intertwined <laughs> with fossil fuels? And so there are really unfortunate side effects from that, but you know, it's hard is, to is there... it's hard to say you know you're so evil right it's just there's unfortunate things and is no, there an no advantage companies. in using natural gas to power bitcoin miners does that help the environment in any way so i have heard it things but it uh, depends cause, <laughs> well because what i always hear is like natural gas uh a lot of it gets vented into the atmosphere when they when they do the flaring uh, and mm -hmm. then when they tap into the Bitcoin miners, it I guess they use that energy and convert that into the mining process. So is there like validity to that? There, yeah, it depends. <laughs> You're okay. talking about like flared or vented gas, like in the oil and gas fields or with landfill gas, right? Mostly mm -hmm. oil and gas right now. Yeah. So there's different parts, there's you know, different stages of oil and you know, oil production. And a gas gets flared for different reasons, mostly because, or it gets stranded or it gets flared for different reasons. It gets stranded because maybe it's not economical to build a pipeline to this gas, or it gets stranded because it, maybe the production levels aren't high enough to, to be worth, you know, building up that pipeline or transporting it. And then they flare because sometimes there's too much pressure in the wells and they have to flare that off. And that also can be very expensive. They can get fines and there's a lot of illegal flaring going on. So Bitcoin miners that are directly addressing truly flared um, natural gas or vented natural gas are, the, are actually doing something good to decarbonize. Buying up stranded gas is not necessarily good, I think, because it's if it's stranded, doesn't mean that you're using it, right? The question is, would it have otherwise been burned inefficiently and then put into the environment? And if that is the case, then yeah, Bitcoin miners taking it 
can, you know, running it through a very efficient generator and combusting it so that it, it becomes CO2 is actually doing a net good for our, our climate goals and our decarbonization goals because methane is far more potent over a short period of time of like, you know, over 20 years, it's like 84 or 87 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And the natural process for methane in the atmosphere is ultimately to become CO2. So you're really just speeding up that process and uh, you know, buying us some time. So yeah, that, that can actually be a good thing. But there's caveats, right? It depends on where you're getting that flared gas, where you're getting that natural gas. And that's the thing that has to, there has to be a lot more transparency around that because I think a lot of, Oil and gas miners, they might claim that they're helping the environment, but if they're just buying gas that just didn't have an off-taker, but wasn't going to be burned without the off-taker, then, you know, I, I, I don't I don't count that as being beneficial. So it sounds like it's almost a case-by-case -case basis with that. Um, I mean, if you follow mainstream media, you've heard the narrative that Bitcoin mining is bad for the environment. It's going to melt our planet. So with, you know, with all the work and research you've done over the years, like what's your sort of opinion on this? Like, is it bad for the environment or, you know, is it doing a net good? I don't think Bitcoin is bad for the environment. I think Bitcoin is like any other industry right now that has good and bad things going on. I think every industry is struggling to decarbonize, to meet these goals. I think governments are not doing a very good job because ultimately, especially with Bitcoin miners that are on the electrical grids, you know, the biggest issue really is on the generation side. So over time, as you replace your fossil fuels with renewable energy or sustainable energy sources, that grid mix is going to become more and more you know, renewable more and more sustainable. And then those who are using that power are also going to reduce their emissions over time in general as a result of that. So really the question is, how do we speed up that decarbonization process so that everyone can feel good about the energy they're using? So that no company is bad or is a bad company because they're not actively pursuing it. And also it's expensive to, to do some of the things that they're being asked to do to, to play an active role in uh, incentivizing the um, decarbonization of the grid. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. So I hate to, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's fair to characterize Bitcoin as being bad for the environment. I think that Certain Bitcoin miners have made poor choices and they're learning. <laughs> they're learning not to make those poor choices again. And I think it's just an industry that has to mature and meet everybody else where they're at. And, and uh, I don't think that Bitcoin is going to put us, you know, over two degrees of warming all by itself. So I, I think a lot of that is overblown due to really bad, really, really bad modeling. I think that's like the best and probably most honest answer I've heard on that question because mm -hmm. it doesn't paint one, it doesn't paint Bitcoin as this like evil thing that's trying to destroy all of us. But at the same time, it's not 
uh, it, you know, that uh, saying, like everything is good for Bitcoin and Bitcoin solves everything. Um, it, you're acknowledging that like, yes, yeah, sometimes people do bad things, whether it's with other things, but in this case with Bitcoin. So like, if you use the right energy sources, if you do things ethically, it, it can be a net good for the environment, uh, but it isn't always. And we have to kind of like be very mindful of that in, you know, in mining. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate that because like, you know, it's, it's kind of a message that people need to take in and really process because like, yeah, at the end of the day, it isn't always going to be good. Um, but you know, the people, if they, they think carefully, if the planning is put into place and all the incentives are, I guess, structured properly, um, it is going to help us one day down the road, hopefully. Um, yeah. Bitcoin Sorry, is go ahead. just and Bitcoin is just a network. It's just a technology. It you know, whether it does good or bad really depends on the people who use it. Is there anything like in the energy discussion that you feel hasn't really been talked about yet, like in podcasts and the news and things like that? Have have we kind of missed something important? Well, I think most of what gets missed in the in articles about Bitcoin that are in publications not within the Bitcoin space or cryptocurrency space in general, is how the network works, how the incentives work, and what it what it means for the difficulty to adjust, uh, you know, every two weeks, what it means for the block reward to be cut in half every four, approximately every four years, you know, what does that mean for the economics of Bitcoin mining. I think that piece is missing a lot of times. And if you're if you don't address that particular part, you're always gonna think, oh my gosh, Bitcoin's just gonna keep consuming, consuming, consuming energy, and it's always just gonna get fossil fuels and coal for whatever reason, you know. And and I think that we're really missing a big piece of the story when that's ignored. That's a really good point. Yeah, the the difficulty adjustment. Um, would have to factor into how much energy is consumed in the first place. There's this belief that like every single month or every single year, we're just going to have more miners coming on board, which means more power. And again, the melting of the planet. But uh, yeah, that, that's a really good point. And uh, hopefully that'll kind of come to light. I know Dennis Porter, he's traveling around the country. He's talking to politicians. So I'm assuming some of those conversations are being had. Um, I want to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit. Uh, I'm curious about the work you do with BPI. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm a fellow. I'm, I believe I'm an environmental fellow <laughs> at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And I've been there since the beginning, the very beginning of the Institute, which started in uh, 2022. And what we do is we do a lot of education and outreach and try to do research on Bitcoin mining to be able to inform policymakers, the public and media about this new technology called Bitcoin and what it does and how it works. And, and basically, I think our goal really is to raise the discourse uh, around Bitcoin beyond the shock value or the clickbait and to get people to really understand what it is that Bitcoin is capable of doing. And, so that's our main focus. I'm one of, I don't know, a dozen fellows and who all come primarily out of academia, have PhDs. Most of them, I think, are professors and 
Now everybody is very serious about Bitcoin and studying it. And, and yeah, we do, we've done, we, we had our first summit last year in Washington, DC. And that was, that was really exciting. We had a bunch of panels. It was fun though. Hoping we get to do that again next year. Do you get to talk to politicians yourself? No, I, I have not spoken to any politicians. I don't think that as a fellow, I'm supposed to be talking to politicians. <laughs> we're not a 501c4, uh, we're 501c3, so we don't lobby politicians. Really, okay. we're supposed to be independent and just doing independent research. So our job really isn't to lobby politicians. It's really just to say, like, here's the information, here's what we know, here's the latest report. Based off of our research, you know, you make the decision. Right. Yeah. You're not doing there any are... sort of co coercion. <laughs> no, no, that's not our role. <laughs> do you do you feel like the people that you speak to are rather receptive, or are they pretty like you know get away from me? Oh well, it depends what which people <laughs> are you talking about. <laughs> um. Well, and anybody, I guess, but I'm thinking more like like when you uh, when you did your summit. Were people pretty willing to to listen? Do they have questions? Were they critical of what you had to say? Uh, everyone who attended the summit were, were very positive. Everyone I spoke with was very positive about our panels, and they were excited to be there. I didn't get any negative feedback. I think, uh, I think actually the summit did a really nice job of demonstrating to the industry that BPI was very serious and very necessary and was filling a gap in uh you know in the outreach so yeah i didn't hear anything negative but maybe you know the more bpi gets out there reaches other audiences you know we might get more negative feedback or different feedback but so far i think everything has been pretty positive i'm glad to hear that i'm glad you guys get that opportunity to really highlight some of the truth, uh, especially the stuff that just doesn't get called out publicly. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we saw that New York Times article, and that that's really the kind of things that we've been seeing. Uh, there was the article, I forget who the publishers were, you know, you know, the one I'm talking about that it had to do with global warming. And it was, I think, done by, I think it was somebody that was an undergrad, I wish I could think of the name. You mean the Mora paper? That's the, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's like the probably the most most documented and cited one and uh, i mean it's been disproven i think within that publication itself hasn't it there were three papers that commented on that publication in the same journal after it was not long after it was published and all three of them said this the methodology is woefully bad you know well you know it's just it's uh very poor poorly done and you're results your forecasting is impossible so i i'm really actually very surprised that the paper was not retracted and i think last i heard from mr mora or dr mora uh publicly uh he seems to still stand behind his paper which is unfortunate because it's totally bogus and yeah it's still there up on nature climate changes well, website so that's yeah. why i say bpi you guys are doing your thing and hopefully we can get more of you out there 
Um, yeah, Margo, yeah. this has been, this has been great. You've honestly, you've even kind of helped me think a little bit differently about a couple things. Uh, and hopefully people will really think critically about Bitcoin mining Again, it's, uh, it, it, it has its positive things. I mean, obviously we need it for the Bitcoin network itself. Uh, but let's not just assume that it's going to like fix the environment. Uh, it's going to heal everything. Uh, it does come with its downsides. Uh, but we just, if, if we have careful planning and the incentives are, uh, set up correctly i think it's it's going to be a net good for the world um if people want to learn more about you or f find you online where can they look they can find me on twitter or x i guess or noster i don't know i'm trying to be more active on there but failing right now <laughs> but I, I am on there too and i'm jen urso j y n underscore u r s o that's my name on those platforms you can find me there and i always check my dms on twitter sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to reply back but i do respond generally as long as you're not asking me to <laughs> promote your product or <laughs> you know you're not trying to scam me you usually get a response out of me so that's just the best way to find me i'm also on uh -huh. linkedin and people do add me there and message me it just takes me a little while longer because I don't check LinkedIn that often. So, but I, I reply to all the messages I get on LinkedIn too. Just look up Marco Pies, you'll find me. It's pretty easy, it seems. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, you know what? Considering how busy you are with everything that you've got going on, I'm amazed you have time to even reach out. I, I DM'd you on Twitter. You got back to me pretty promptly. We played a little bit of uh, almost like phone tag, so to speak. But yeah, thank yeah. you so much for doing this and uh, for, for shedding some valuable light on the topic. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. You can find me, Milan, on Twitter. My handle is at milannesic 84 It's at M-I-L-A-N-N-E-S-I-C-8-4. If you want to write me, maybe you have a question idea for a show or even a guest my email address is milan at btcvsthebanks.com lastly if you want to help support the show see it grow you're welcome to donate via lightning and the address to send to is btcvsthebanks at fountain.com that's f-o-u-n-t-a-i-n dot f-m